Hello, everybody. Welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Who am I with today? Uh, your dear friend and colleague, <sighs> Susanna. Uh, you again. <laughs> well, if I'm stuck with you. I'm stuck with you. Susanna, you doing okay? Thanksgiving's around the corner. You got some plans? Uh, I have plans to have Thanksgiving with my husband and son and two dogs. Right on. So, happy right Thanksgiving, on. Joe. Thank you. You know, it is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, November. It's a tough problem. We need some new treatments. We need some discovery science. And today, you're going to hear about some pretty promising research around lung squamous cell carcinoma from Dr. Verlene Justilian. She's assistant professor of cancer biology at the Mayo Clinic. Susanna, this was fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think Verlene did an amazing job of helping us to understand some of the challenges in lung cancer, specifically the subtype of lung cancer that she studies, which is indeed lung squamous cell carcinoma, where she lays out that this subtype is so difficult to treat because oftentimes we don't know the genes that are involved. And even if we do know them, we don't potentially have a, a way to target them. So you hear lots about precision medicine and how to specifically target a person's tumor. Well, fly into the rescue, Verlene and her amazing lab, because they study a protein called EC2. And EC2 is an oncogenic protein where we know that too much of it is a bad thing. And Verlene and her group have shown that not only is too much of it a bad thing, but the more you have of it as a lung squamous cell carcinoma patient, the worse your prognosis is. And so she's got some really cool things to say about how we could use understanding how much of this ECT2 that you have to predict your, your outcome and to maybe very early on um, identify patients who will have a worse prognosis and treat them um, more rigorously. And then she also has really interesting early stage research with um, great therapeutic potential of ways that we could target ECT2 um, and to turn off all these terrible functions that that this protein has. And so we end up um, at the end of the conversation really hearing from Verlene about how she has been so successful, what has driven her success and what advice she would share to other minority women who have dreams just like she did um, of being a scientist. So I think you're going to love this podcast. Good morning, Verlene. How are you? I am doing well. Good morning, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. I am so excited to talk to you and just find out all, all the ins and outs of what you've been up to. So if you're ready, we'll dive in. Okay, let's do it. All right. So let's just level set for our audience. You are an expert in a particular type of lung cancer um, that we call lung squamous cell carcinoma. So why, why this cancer? Why did you choose to focus your research here? So um, lung cancer is broadly divided into two major classes small cell lung cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. And this is based on what the cells, cancer cells look like under the microscope. So the majority of lung cancer cases, approximately 85% are actually diagnosed as non-small cell lung cancer, which is further subclassified into lung squamous cell carcinoma, lung adenocarcinoma, and large cell carcinoma. 
So lung squamous cell carcinoma specifically is the second most common subtype of lung cancer and accounts for about 30% of um, diagnoses. Um, most of the uh, patients that are diagnosed with lung squamous cell carcinoma are um, smokers, and this disease generally arises closer to the central part of the lungs um, within the airways. So lung squamous cell carcinoma is characterized by poor therapeutic response and really high relapse rates because there are fewer therapeutic options due to a lack of druggable targets in this disease. So my research is specifically focused on lung squamous cell carcinoma because um, I believe there's a great clinical unmet need for better therapeutic options for this deadly disease. Wow, that was a, a really beautiful explanation. You certainly laid that out for us. I mean, the the fact that this is the second most common subtype, that it is met with poor therapeutic options and a, a high rate of relapse. So, so this absolutely seems like a, a great place for you to to focus your research in lung cancer. So maybe let's dive in a little bit to one of the last things you said, which was that this is a great unmet need. There aren't any, as you said, great therapies available that specifically treat lung squamous cell carcinoma. So maybe help us understand a little bit about why that is. Well, I think this is a very important point and really highlights why there is a critical unmet need for effective therapies to treat lung squamous cell carcinoma patients. So molecular profiling of tumors, meaning profiling the changes that occur in a tumor's genetic makeup has really changed the way that we view tumors. So these profiling efforts have led to identification of major oncogenic lung adenocarcinoma driver mutations, such as oncogenic mutations in KRAS, EGFR, and ALK genes. So the knowledge of these oncogenic drivers has led to novel therapeutics that target these oncogenic drivers in lung adenocarcinomas. These advances have significantly, in my mind, improved the clinical management of lung adenocarcinoma patients. So unfortunately, the aberrant genetic alterations that take place in lung squamous cell carcinoma is much more complex than lung adenocarcinoma. And I think the development of targeted therapies for lung squamous cell carcinoma has lagged because in um, this disease, we either do not know what the oncogenic driver are, or if we do know the oncogenic driver, it's one that has no proven treatment. In addition, unlike um, some of the other subtypes of lung cancer, there's a lack of uh, lung squamous cell carcinoma engineered models that faithfully uh, recapitulate the genetic, biochemical, and pathological features of the human disease so that we can better study and understand how lung squamous cell carcinoma develops. And um, these models could also serve as um, testing agents for new therapies. Okay, interesting. So it, it seems like you narrowed in on two issues that drive this unmet need for really great therapeutic options for lung squamous cell carcinoma. And those seem to be kind of two different paths. One is maybe we, we either, well, the disease is complex and it's complex because you 
you laid out a picture where we either don't understand something you called an oncogenic driver, like what the oncogenic drivers are, or we don't have a treatment. And then the second place is that we're not really knocking it out on the park in model systems. So let's talk about the first. I want to make sure our audience understands what an oncogenic driver is. I mean, so I imagine a lot of our audience is sitting there thinking about, um, you know, drivers, when we think about it, are people sitting in cars and they're, they're the ones that push on the gas and make the cars go. And I think we can draw a really tight analogy to what an oncogenic driver is in a cancer. Could you, could you help us with that? So I think the analogy about uh, driving the car and, and imagine that, a lot of these oncogenic drivers is kind of like a brake on a car, right? Yeah. And so yeah. you have a mutation that occurs in the gene where you no longer have the brake function, right? And so the car is driving uncontrollably. Absolutely. And so in this case, the, the car is the cancer cell. And so it's out of control. So let's let's circle back then and one of the things that you mentioned is that in lung squamous cell carcinoma, we we have two problems with these oncogenic drivers that we either don't know what is applying the brake, like what gene is applying the brake, or we don't have a treatment for it if we do know it. Did I summarize that correctly? Correct. All right. So here's where you and your amazing group come in. You work on a protein called EG2. Can you tell us a little bit about EG2 and what does that actually mean for it to have this function as an oncogene? So, yes. So, we refer to EG2 as an oncogene because our studies have shown that EG2 is involved in the shift of normal cells into lung squamous cell carcinoma cells. So, we find that in more than approximately 70% of lung squamous cell carcinoma cases that the EC2 gene is altered. Specifically, the number of copies of the EC2 gene present in a cancer cell is more than the number of copies present in a normal cell. As a result, cancer cells make more EC2 protein. And we have also found that the elevated levels of EC2 is associated with poor prognosis and lower overall survival for cancer patients. So surprisingly, not only do cancer cells make more EC2 protein than normal cells, but we find that the EC2 protein in cancer cells has actually acquired new functions that serve to maintain the malignant lung squamous cell carcinoma cells. Oh, that really doesn't seem very fair. So <laughs> yeah, you've, you've found this protein EC2 and you said that the worst of the worst of so these lung squamous cell carcinomas where there is a lot of ec 2 so you said altered copies of the gene mm-hmm. resulting in more ec 2 than there should be Precisely. has yeah it has some you've shown that this has some detrimental effects on the cancer patients themselves and so you that readout is in decreased survival so and then you said that EG2 actually develops during this process some, I guess, even some functions that are helpful in some way for this cancer. So what is it? What is it about EG2 that seems to be so cool for lung squamous cell carcinoma to, to have? What are these traits? 
So the ec 2 gene in, in normal cells actually plays an important role in the ability of a cell to copy itself and to, um, to replicate itself. And so in normal cells have um, functions where they can um, properly control ECT2's activity so that once the cell has divided, that ECT2 would become, uh, would disengage and no longer uh, would act. And so kind of going back to the analogy about um, an oncogene and, and a cancer cell being a car and that oncogene really being um, a, a change in that oncogene is an alteration that causes uh, the cell to lose its break function. That's precisely, precisely what um, ECT2 is doing in this case where um, the cancer cell has more ECT2 and is not able to properly regulate the turning on and turning off of the ECT2 function. And so our studies have actually shown that ECT2 drives processes in lung cancer cells that really fuels their malignant behavior, including the ability for a tumor to, to initiate, so to begin, to grow uncontrollably, progress and become more malignant, metastasize, relapse, and, and even um, exhibit uh, decreased sensitivity to chemotherapy. So, uh, you know, taken together, our studies have shown that ECT2 really plays critical roles in the mechanisms that drive lung stem cell carcinoma lethality and treatment of platelets. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. So you seem to have really found a critical role for ECT2 in parts of the disease. And, and one thing that caught my attention is the role that ECT2 plays in metastasis. So how, how good do you think the potential is that you could use ECT2? So one of the things that you said is that for cancer patients, the more ECT2 that they have, the worse their prognosis. So do you think ECT2, the levels of ECT2 in your cancer could be used to predict patient outcomes? Yes, that's actually a, a, a very good question. And yes, we do. So according to the World Health, Health Organization, uh, human lung stomach cell carcinoma actually develops in a stepwise progression in which your normal airway cells undergo a series of uh, precancerous changes that eventually leads to um, invasive lung stomach cell carcinoma or even metastatic lung stomach cell carcinoma. So interestingly, not all, not all of these precancerous lesions will actually become lung squamous cell carcinoma, and with some will actually regress over time. So several research groups have actually performed studies to profile the genetic makeup of precancerous lesions before and after they evolved into lung squamous cell carcinoma. So we actually published a recent um, study on this where we analyzed these profiling data and we found that the precancerous lesions that progressed to lung squamous cell carcinoma had ECT2 gene amplification, meaning they had more copies of the ECT2 gene than those that did not progress or even regress. 
So I think what this tells us is that the amplification of X2 or the increased number of copies of the X2 gene occurs early in lung squamous cell carcinoma development, even before a lesion would actually be considered malignant. And that X2 amplification or increase in gene copy number actually associates with the ability of these precancerous lesions to become a malignant lung squamous cell carcinoma tumor. So therefore, we think if we could profile a patient's lesion at an early stage of lung squamous cell carcinoma development, the presence or absence of the increase in F2 gene copy number could actually help us predict whether or not those lesions are likely to progress to a more aggressive form of the disease. Wow, wow that's absolutely fascinating. So what happens if a a patient is missed. So right now, this is these are developmental studies, and it certainly makes perfect sense that a precancerous lesion would want, in a way, to generate more and more and more ECT two in order to develop all these really terrible traits that are going to allow it to become potentially eventually in a malignant cell. So the fact that you could predict that is just absolutely fascinating. But but what happens to the the patients who who don't who aren't caught at that point and who have progressed? Do you think ECT2 is something that could be targeted therapeutically? Um, and and how is your research, if so, how does your research fit into developing tools not to really detect ECT2, but actually to target it and to turn it off and stop kind of this cascade of terrible functions? Ah, that's actually a wonderful question. And this is precisely what we are trying to do in the lab, um, which is made possible by the funding support um, by ACS. So we know that EC2 participates in a number of pathways that are critical for the growth of tumor cells. And we believe that by inhibiting EC2, we can block the growth of lung tumor cell carcinoma tumor cells. And so although EC2 is critical for the survival of normal cells, we believe that we have what we call a therapeutic window in that we have identified specific functions for EC2 in lung squamous cell carcinoma cells that do not appear to take place in normal cells. So one of our goals is to try to develop targeted therapies that, specific, that will specifically target the oncogenic functions of EC2 while sparing its functions in normal cells. Fascinating. So I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more. You you mentioned that the American Cancer Society had funded some of this research. Could you m- maybe help our listeners understand how that funding has impacted you? So particularly as a young investigator, so I recently started um, my lab um, right about the time that I obtained funding. Yes. And, you know, I've been particularly grateful for receiving this award, which I think has been really critical in supporting and fueling the progress that we're making in the laboratory to try to translate our findings into the clinic. In addition, the ACS award has really positioned me to be a vital part of the research community, which aims to make progress in designing molecularly targeted therapies so that we can more effectively treat human cancers such as lung squamous cell carcinoma. And I think lastly, these 
the ACS funds that I've received are really helping me to lay the foundation to make um, further scientific advancements. We could not be more excited to have you as an ACS researcher. So it's absolutely thrilling to watch your progress. Um, I, I'd like to ask a little bit of a different question because you mentioned that you have a new lab. This funding has fueled your research progress. And then you also laid out examples where that ACS funding has fueled your career. So we we would all like more women of color to be in STEM fields and to stay in STEM fields. And I think for that to happen, we need to see role models who look like who look like us. So if you're a woman of color, it's it's really helpful and motivating to see women of color in science. And so you are one of those role models now. And I would really love to know if, if there's some advice that looking back you would have given to yourself to maybe encourage you um, to keep at it and to accomplish some pretty impressive already achievements in science. Uh, Suzanne, I, I could not agree with with you more about um, what you just um, said. So I think I would tell my high school self to kind of looking back to really make a plan and stay focused on on my goals um, and to work on those things that will prepare you for the next phase of your education or career. Um, I would advise myself to be more brave and be willing to go outside of my comfort zone. Um, I think one of the things that have most impacted my career is having uh, great mentors. So I definitely would advise my high school self to seek out um, mentors um, as well as to get involved and seek out opportunities to uh, gain, gain experience. I love that. I love the thought around be more brave. We could all <laughs> we could all use that advice at every stage. And I think it's such an interesting parallel with what cancer patients and survivors and all of us in the cancer community go through all the time is that um, we just need to be more brave. Um, so I really, I really love that. Um, I have one other kind of related question, and that is that while women of color who are in college report interest in STEM majors at what I believe is a fairly equal rate as white women who are in college, uh, women of color still remain the least represented group in STEM. And I think this is a tragedy because we are losing talent and we're losing valuable perspectives. So I'd, I would love to know what what do you think um, that we at the American Cancer Society can do to better attract and retain women of color in research? So that's a very important topic, and thank you for bringing that up. So I think the unequal representation of minority women in research is really an issue with many layers. And I think in order to see really lasting a substantial increase in representation of uh, minority women in research, that there will likely need to be wholesale institutional changes. So I think I really applaud 
the many institutions that are being really intentional in the admissions of um, minority women. However, I think once minority women enter these institutions, I think they need to continue to be intentional in helping minority women and tackling their often, you know, things like lower socioeconomic status or cultural differences, and perhaps the need to balance their education and working which may impact their ability to do well in their courses and um, perform extracurricular activities that will really make them competitive for admissions to graduate school. So I think, you know, it seems like, as you stated, that there seems to be equal interests among uh, white and um, minority women in college and interest in the STEM fields. But I really think you know, college seems to be a bottleneck and perhaps it's, you know, some of those issues are are why. So I think institutions really helping to tackle some of these issues, I think, would, would certainly help. So I also applaud um, ACS for some of its really great initiatives, such as uh, researchers that are specifically funding women-led research efforts. And so I would really, you know, encourage ACS to continue such um, initiatives and perhaps establishing, helping to establish outreach and um, mentorship programs. Because as I said um, earlier, I think one of the things that have made the most impact in my career is mentoring and um, as well as, you know, different organizations doing outreach to really bring knowledge about STEM fields to me, whereas I would not have necessarily gone out to, you know, research these things on my own, but because others kind of brought the knowledge to me, I think made a um, significant impact. Mm, What a wonderful message. I think that what you said applies not only to our work at the ACS, it applies to the way that you seem to run your research and the ways that you would encourage minority women to engage and the things that I picked up that you said were to be intentional and be brave and be balanced. I love don't be a bottleneck. (laughs) And then I think um, I love bring your full self to everything that you do. And so um, I I know that you think a lot about cancer patients in your work, um, which is so readily translatable to their world. So I think my last question would just be that many of our listeners are cancer patients and survivors and caregivers. Is there a particular message you would like to share with these listeners? Uh, Susanna, absolutely. So central to the work that my lab is um, doing is the Mayo Clinic core value that the needs of the patient comes first. And it is my goal to contribute meaningfully to reducing the burden of cancer in our lives. So cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers, I mean, I admire your resilience. You're my inspiration and my motivation to really remain steadfast in the work that we're doing and continuing to work diligently to translate our scientific discoveries in the lab into the clinic to really help patients by identifying new and um, hopefully improved early diagnostic, prognostic, as well as therapeutic intervention strategies. Well, we admire you, Verlene, and we're so excited for the work that you're doing and the impact that you have now and that you will continue to have. So thanks for chatting with us and best of luck. 
Thank you, Susanna. Thank you so very much for having me and letting me share a little bit about my work with you today.